0: Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. We're continuing our series of episodes on liberal education. Our first three in this series have been on Leo Strauss, Hannah Arendt, and Eva Braun. Make sure you go back into our archives and listen to those episodes if you haven't already. There are lots of continuities across these conversations. Today, we take up two essays by the political philosopher Michael Oakeshott, one called A Place of Learning and the other Learning and Teaching. These essays can be found in a volume published by Liberty Fund called The Voice of Liberal Learning. Remember to send us a message. If you have ideas about books, guests, or topics for a series, we can be reached at flagtaylor703 at gmail.com. That's flag with two Gs and T-A-Y-L-O-R 703 at gmail.com or you can send us a message on twitter our handle is at the eipod our guest today to discuss michael oakshot is elizabeth corey elizabeth is professor of political science at baylor university in waco texas her writing has appeared in a variety of popular and scholarly journals including first things national affairs the wall street journal and the chronicle of higher education she received a bachelor's in classics from Oberlin College and a master's and doctoral degrees in art history and political science from Louisiana State University. She serves on the board of directors of the Institute on Religion and Public Life, the publisher of First Things, and she's also an American enterprise faith and public life visiting professor during the year 2022. Well, welcome Elizabeth Corey, to Enduring Interest. We're happy to have you here to discuss Michael Oakshaw.
1: Thank you, it's great to be here.
0: Uh, so you, you suggested that, that uh, we look at two essays in particular, A Place of Learning uh, learning and Teaching. Before we dive into those two essays and, and talk about some of the related ones in the, in the volume in which you can find them, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about who Michael Oakshot was, what his primary interests were as a, as a scholar. Just give us a little bit of biographical background on, on Oakshot the man.
1: Sure. He's, a, he's actually a very interesting uh, person. He's born in 1901, he's British, uh, he's uh, brought up in, in England, goes to prep school, um, and then goes to Cambridge and studies history uh, in the, I guess he would be in the 20s, and um, wrote a very precocious early book called Experience and its Modes, where he sets out a, a kind of modal understanding of life. Uh, and he sets out three modes, science, history, and practice. And um, he writes this book. It's kind of a uh, philosopher's book. It's not perhaps the easiest or the most stylistically elegant of his of his work, but it's a blockbuster kind of gets his career started Uh, in the 40s. He goes early 40s. He goes to um, uh, to war, actually, and and works in intelligence and then comes back uh, to Cambridge for just about a year and then is uh, asked to uh, come to the London School of Economics, which he does and succeeds uh, Harold Lasky and he stays at uh, LSE from about 1950 to about 1969. Um, he retires in 69, goes on um, and um, lives in Dorset, famously as a little cottage in Dorset, which he lives in with his um, his third wife uh, and he dies in 1990. So his whole his whole um, life is spent in England um, more or less, although as a young man, he's also spent time in Germany. He was fluent in German, French, um, I'm told and um, I th- maybe Italian, but definitely German and French. So, and he's widely read. And what's perhaps most interesting is that in recent years, people have found his, bio- uh, his, his, uh, his notebooks and they've been published. And it shows this incredible breadth of reading, of learning. He read everything and everyone in English, French and German and um, is appropriating the thought of, of you know, everybody from Plato and Aristotle to um, George Santayana and uh, others who are writing more or less contemporaneously with him. Very widely learned man and, um, and most known for writing essays, interestingly. He, he starts his career with experience in its modes. He ends with On Human Conduct, which is a serious book of philosophy, political philosophy. And it's a, it's a tougher go, uh, again. But in the intermediate time, he doesn't write other books. He writes essays uh, and he's a he's a wonderful essayist. And we can talk perhaps about which essays would, would be the best for people who don't know Michael Oakeshott's work. Yeah, just kind of overview of who he was.
0: Sure. Does he would you say that um, I guess both his his self understanding as a as a scholar, did he think of himself as a political philosopher, a philosopher, a political scientist, a historian, does he fit into kind of any of our uh, normal intellectual departments or categories, or does he kind of transcend them?
1: The sh- short answer is no, he's not just one. Um, I think he, he would have called himself a historian as a young man, but he's pretty quickly off into philosophy. And he is known commonly now as a political philosopher. Uh, and I think that's where he would, I mean, he fits best there. I mean, his his uh, on human conduct is really a deep dive into what is a, what is association? What is human association? Well, first, it's actually what is human morality? How do we understand ourselves as moral beings? So that the whole first essay is about that. But then he turns to, on the basis of that moral understanding, what is, uh, what is civil association? What does that look like? How ought we to associate with one another? And he's drawing there on the work of Hobbes. And, you know, the whole, really the whole tradition, he's, he writes that book after he retires. So he's had 30 years of teaching at the um, London School of Economics, uh, and teaching the great books. And he's he's really bringing all this together into a kind of unique philosophy of his own. But I'd say okay. political philosopher, but not political scientist. He is not interested in voting behavior right. or um, scientific understandings of politics. That is very much uh, the target of, right. of his critique.
0: Yeah, we can talk about that when he gets to the we get to the second, the second essay, he has some, some choice, some choice words for social science. Um, Yeah, that's a good, so I guess that's a good transition um, to the two essays. The first one um, is called The Place of Learning. Uh, Why don't we start there? Uh, I guess, first question, anything important about the, the context of the original context for the, for the essays? I mean, these were, I think each one was written in the 60s, one in the 70s. So these are, Kind of near the end of his his career, they started off as as lectures, but any anything else important about the, the original context?
1: Yeah, it's actually the, the original context of these is, is interesting. And I'm um, looking here at the dates of the essays, actually they start in 1948, 49, 50. Um, and then he does he writes one in the 60s, one in the 70s, actually three in the 70s um, and then another in the 60s. So they're really 1948 to 1974 or, or 1975. Um, he never, I think, planned to publish them as a collection, though the editor of the collection, uh, sort of the dean of Oakshot studies is Tim Fuller, who is still a professor of uh, political philosophy at Colorado College, has told me that Oakshot was very happy to have these published. Uh, he, um, Tim Fuller collected them in, a, in this book before Oakshot's death. and. Wrote a very gracious introduction to the book, and Oakeshott was very pleased by that. Um, so, in a way, you know, these were these seem to be kind of off his main topic. I mean, he's usually writing about politics. Uh, he's he's usually, you know, it, most famously, he's writing about rationalism. Uh, rationalism in politics is his most famous work, uh, which is a series of essays too. But in a certain way, I would say these actually are at the heart of his his thought. I mean, there's a there's a quote. By one of his students, Martin Thompson, and he says, you know, the question of education was really at the heart of everything Oakeshott ever wrote, and I think that is true, um, because he he thinks that the fundamental reason or the fundamental way of becoming human is through a kind of education. So, in a in a way, these seem kind of incidental to his interest, but they're not. I actually think they're they're very central to to his thought, um, and you know, even that even though he is not usually considered a, a theorist of education.
0: Right, right. Well, yeah, let's start, start there with a place of learning. Like you said, he has this, this, um, he connects learning very explicitly to our humanity. Uh, and maybe we can start with the opening of that essay, a place of learning where he talks about freedom and he says freedom is, he doesn't mean by freedom, free will. So maybe just say a few, a few words about his understanding of, of freedom and it's a relationship to, to learning.
1: Well, I think um, there are lots of different ways we could talk about what he means by freedom, but uh, essentially it is a freedom to make decisions about one's own life and to enact oneself, um, sort of in the context of moral life. He has a line that, that's something like um, the notion of an unfree will doesn't make any sense uh, I'm not interested in free will for its own sake, but I am interested in what freedom means for a human being, which is to say, it is the ability of that person to make informed choices about moral conduct, about uh, his intellectual interests. It is, uh, it is not determined by genetics. It's not determined by biology. Freedom is, is a freedom is, is the condition of being an intelligent human person. Um, And he says this actually um, on page five of the first essay, and, and I'll just read you a short quote. What distinguishes a human being is not merely his having to think, but his thoughts, his beliefs, doubts, understandings, his awareness of his own ignorance, his wants, preferences, choices, sentiments, emotions, purposes, and his expression of them in utterances or actions which have meaning. And the necessary condition of any or all of this is that he must have learned it. So there's a kind of freedom that comes with the process of, of being educated, uh, and actually he sees education as a kind of emancipation.
0: Good. So we're not in in, in a sense this is a different a different take on on freedom, maybe than an early modern conception. Right. We're not necessarily born free in the full sense of freedom. That's that's sort of interesting. I was also struck by his his notion related notion that freedom is felt as a kind of burden, which um, is very interesting and, you know, explains why sometimes it seems human beings run away from, from freedom because it's difficult and hard and learning is, learning is hard. And so they, he, he seems quite sensitive to, to the fact that, um, you know, part of, our, part of our human nature, right, would be to seek the easy way out and, and, and run away from this burden.
1: He does say something along those lines, and I think it's in his discussion of what it means to have have an identity, and we we might talk about this um, in another context with respect to contemporary contemporary identity politics, but what he's saying is you can't avoid the problem of identity and learning to become the person you most fully should be By sort of attaching yourself to certain identity characteristics like your sex, your your race, um, your, um, you know, anything that you haven't chosen. He's actually saying that the, the cost of freedom is learning to see yourself in a tradition, to understand the tradition that has made you who you are. And in exploring the intimations of that tradition, I mean, in other words, you, you can't just say you're you're born it's exactly what you said. You can't just say you're you're born human. I mean, you're born free. You're born um, as an unformed human being, and it's the process of learning that makes you into your fullest self. And that's not easy. And that's um, and and I do think he thought a lot of people would like to evade that if possible.
0: Maybe we can jump. I was going I was gonna jump to the. his his discussion of what learning is and isn't, but maybe jump ahead because you just, you mentioned it. He has this, this notion of kind of learning to confront one's own, you know, cultural inheritance, but what struck me when I was reading these essays, it's, he doesn't seem to mean that um, in, in the way that sometimes you hear some, some conservatives talk about kind of cultural learning that, that we're part of this Western tradition and it, it, it's, it sort of is what we are born to, to deal with, and we have to pass it down to the next generation. So each generation has to kind of learn what our tradition is and just pass it along. I don't think that's quite what he means by confronting a cultural tradition or, or if it may, maybe he does. And I didn't, I didn't quite get it, but, but maybe talk about his, his notion of, of, um, the the encounter with this tradition and how he wants human beings to engage it.
1: That is a very interesting and good question, because on the one hand, when you read Oakshott, he does talk a lot about inheritance and heir. He talks about being an heir to a tradition and uh, having and handing that tradition on. So there's a certain sense in which you could read it and say that is a kind of conventional, um, conservative, um, Western, um, Western tradition. Uh, Centric way of understanding uh, the the tradition, um, which is that it is something we have. It's mostly good. Uh, He's not a a huge critic of our tradition uh, and it is our job to hand it down. But all that said, I think that would be a kind of underestimation of what he's up to. I mean, he really sees this tradition as having to be not just handed down, but really appropriated by the heir. So it's not just that you could show everybody, you know, Plato and Aristotle, you could read Hobbes, and then that would be the Western tradition that you would have handed down. Every single person who reads those books has to come to terms with them himself or herself uh, and make them their their own. He's, he's quite insistent about this. It's not just a question of uh, sort of getting a kind of cultural literacy. That's That's not what he's after. He really wants... Um, the, the adventure of learning to say to, to be a person reading and then thinking and then conversing and making this inheritance one's own. It's a it's a that's where it's a kind of responsibility because that's not easily done. Uh, you know, you don't you don't just kind of go to college for four years and then you got it. It's it's a kind of lifelong engagement and it's, right. it's burdensome in that sense. But he also calls it in many places an adventure. Which I like um, more than a burden because I think it is.
0: Yeah, he says adventure, and he also uses the phrase I think conversational encounter, which is kind of a nice, a nice phrase. Yeah, so that's interesting. So, so then maybe let's just go back. What what does he think? What what is learning, and what is it? What isn't learning? I guess um, in the in the simplest, straightforward way that he talks about
1: it. Yes. Well, um, it is not simply. Uh, acquiring a bunch of information I mean in that sense it's just what's what I've already said that he's he's not he doesn't think it's it's facts it's not a um, sort of a comprehensive understanding of of history Um, I mean it it may be that but it is it is somehow moving from the facts to a kind of personal philosophy I mean in a certain way what he's after is that you you take this inheritance and you again, as I've said before, you make it your own. You understand the, the, the books, the works, the art, the music, and then um, it becomes yours in a way. Uh, also, what learning is not is um, things like um, drugs. He has these, these funny images where he talks about, well, you know, learning is not some kind of state where you're, you're made to to think things because of ec- external um, I- inputs. It's actually uh, it's very much a self self-motivated, um, long-term engagement of, of coming to terms with the inheritance that, that is yours.
0: Yeah, he seems he seems particularly concerned to warn people against understanding as, uh, of learning as um, inducing a reaction to your external environment. That seems to be one of the dangers um, that he sees people embracing, and also just, to, I guess, what we would call vocationalism, you know, acquiring habits and abilities to to be able to carry out uh, a certain task. Um,
1: Yes. I mean, on that point, you know, the, the notion of learning as a means to a career is something that he really strongly objects to. And we see this throughout every essay he writes on on liberal learning that, you know, career is all well and good, but that is not at all what he's he's aiming at in liberal learning. Um, and in fact, it can corrupt the whole enterprise. And I think he'd be shocked to see us now with respect to um, the, the vocationalism of contemporary universities. And he would say, this is what I saw, but it's so much further down the road than, in it, than it was in the 60s in England. Um, so, he, yes, he's, he's very much a, against a kind of vocational telos for, for learning and, and also against um, the notion that learning is all about politics. Uh, which we could we could talk about in a minute. But I mean, it's certainly he's he's not somebody who would have appreciated the contemporary social justice uh, emphasis of universities. He would have protested that.
0: Right. Would that the social justice orientation, would that fall under the other wrong path? In addition to vocationalism, the second one that he mentions, he, he calls it socialization. And I wasn't quite sure what he meant by socializations. Would that be I guess, a socialization in the sense you're just becoming kind of you, you learn to kind of speak the predominant language around you and behave yes. in the way that is that that's all that that is
1: very much so. I mean, in, in a way that the, the socialization is his is his critique of um, kind of contemporary uh, activist politics, because he says, you know, that you don't go to university to learn how to become an activist or to um, discover your, uh, your political identity, you, you go there to, to discover your human identity. Uh, and socialization is, a, is pre- teaching you how to become a functionary. And he hated that. He, he, I mean, it's he's, he's interesting because he's very contemplative in certain essays, but then he's very pointed and critical in, in others. And so you see both sides of that. It's a, it's a kind of appreciative vision of what education can be and then just a skewering of the people he does not like. Right. Um, there's a particular essay uh, called "The Universities," where he just takes to task um, this this man called Moberly, and uh, just you know he faults him for all these reasons that he misunderstands the the purpose of education.
0: And then the third, so so vocationalism is a wrong path, socialization is a is a wrong path, and then the third one that he mentions, I think he calls it general education, and he attaches uh, what what we would call, I think, critical thinking to that, and he, and he says, education isn't abstract aptitudes, which, yes. I, which I found kind of interesting.
1: Well, he's, um, he's, he's getting at this very popular in our day notion of um, just sort of interdisciplinary learning. Mm-hmm. You get a kind of smattering of a lot of stuff, uh, not at a very careful or deep level, but you get a kind of acquaintance with it. In one place, he calls it this sticky mess called culture, Uh, that, that's not a, that's not a discipline. That's not a a kind of deep exploration of a field of thought. It is just a kind of surface uh, acquaintance with these things. And he thinks that's um, increasingly, you know, what, what people say, well, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to study, I'm going to get a general kind of liberal arts education, but, but, but he would say, you're not really learning anything in, in any depth. And that's, much less worthwhile than, than doing something where you would learn uh, in depth, like history, philosophy, art history, um, biology for that matter. Uh, he, he's, he's very much urging us just to, to go deeply into some, what he might call mode of experience and learn it, and then um, be able to appreciate where it, where it is adequate for human experience and where it's not adequate. And that has this notion conversation. I I don't know if we're going to talk about that later, but um, he 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 definitely sees education as a kind of conversation among the modes of experience, which is to say between science, history, um, what he calls practice, which is ordinary moral life, and and that that at at a university we learn how to navigate these modes and we learn how the different modes speak to one another.
0: Right. Yeah. That was the actually. Connects to the quotation I was I was just going to point us to next. Um, this is on page twenty two of of a place of of learning. Uh, he writes: liberal learning is learning to respond to the invitations of the great intellectual adventures in which human beings have come to display their various understandings of the world and of themselves. And then he goes on and and discusses uh, specifically in a not not in a in a obviously, in an in-depth way, but he says something about the, the natural sciences and the humanities. Um, and so, I guess, does liberal learning for him, does this mean he, you know, he, he wants to transcend our departments and divisions and disciplines the way that we've kind of carved up subject matter and, and, and created these, these departments? He thinks a liberally educated person in some sense has to, has to become familiar with, with all of that. What, well, I guess what's your what's your take on I guess how how wide does does your learning have to be <laughs> to, to, yeah. to engage in liberal learning
1: great question um, I, you know on the one hand I've just said he wouldn't be in favor of interdisciplinarity uh, for its own sake just this sort of superficial acquaintance with a lot of stuff uh, so in that sense I think he would he would be very much in favor of if you're going to 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 the university, to study history, well then study history, learn all about it, learn about how history is done, learn the, learn the mode of history rather than just the, the subject. I, when I say mode, it's like what I mean and what he means is just a, a whole way of thought. And, and you can approach history um, or science or poetry or practical life and see that it has certain ways of conceiving the world. We, I mean maybe we need to get into modality to, to really um, make this clear but I mean the, the mode of poetry takes into account things like aesthetic delight, uh, appreciation, um, living in the present, uh, I- enjoyment uh, whereas the mode of history is taking into account the past and how do we study the past and what are the what are the ways in which the past comes to us in the present in the, in the mode of science we're thinking about well what are molecules and atoms and how do we? Uh, How do we understand the world as a collection of things that can be empirically studied and verified? Uh, So I think he he hopes, I I believe, that we would all have some acquaintance with all these modes. But because life is short, it's very likely we won't. So, you know, some Mm -hmm. of us will be scientists, some historians, some of us will be poets. Um, But what he does want is for us to see that these different modes of life exist and that they all have something to say to human experience. And I think what he's also objecting to it's the notion that everything is about science now. You know, everything can be studied scientifically, and that's that's part of why he hates behaviorism so much. Um, that it, it human beings are not just to be studied through the modes of science; they are actually um, capable of being studied historically and philosophically and poetically.
0: Right. So, so yeah, that's a good. We we mentioned this at the beginning. Um, his some of his um, dislike for what for what we today call social science. So maybe say something about that because, and this is right in the context of the passage that I just read, and, and therefore connects to, to this idea that you would approach um, human experience through these different modes. He seems to respect the mode of what I guess we call today natural science. Um, he respects kind of the mode of, of the might belong to the, the humanities or humanistic disciplines, whether that be literature, um, maybe he'd call history a humanistic discipline. Um, but then he gets to social science, and he, he says both terms in that phrase are wrong. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. says he seems not to like social, and he seems not to like science. So maybe just say a bit more about why social science isn't, isn't a mode that he recognizes as, as sort of worthy of being respected.
1: Yes, that is a very good question. Um, one reason for sure is that he thinks uh, social putting social science uh, in place of the human studies is that it 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 creates something that he doesn't believe is real. Now, we could debate that, but he's talking about groups of people don't act intelligently. It is the individual who acts intelligently as an individual, and groups of people are simply many individuals who are brought together uh, to act. But what is most interesting and most important is to to think about the individual and how the individual acts and how the individual understands himself. And that is not to be understood by means of scientific modeling and uh, statistical analysis. I mean, he's very insistent that people have reasons for their actions, not causes. This is something you'll see across his writing reasons, not causes. Well, I used to puzzle over that. Well, what does that mean? Are reasons and causes the same? And of course, they're not, uh, because causes are things that work upon you and uh, in inevitably cause a certain outcome. And reasons are your understanding of who you are and why you've done things. And they may not, um, they may not accord with what other people seem to observe about you. But he's making a very strong defense here um, for individual action and thought and conduct, not behavior. I mean, if reasons and not causes is, is one of his dichotomies. Um, uh, the other is conduct, not behavior, because conduct implies intelligence and behavior implies, you know, like animals have behavior. We can observe animal behavior, but humans act. Humans. Right. Uh, Good. Yeah. Animals. So that
0: that makes sense. So it's, it's, um, kind of a distinction based you know in in the idea that that studying non-human nature and and human nature is is key and and so if he he he's it seems like he sees like he he sees the natural sciences almost trying to conquer the the human world in a way that doesn't respect the integrity yes. of the human world yeah exactly um yeah that's very good uh one before um we we finished with this first essay, um, there was this passage that just jumped out at me. I couldn't, I was just astonished at how applicable it was to our own time. So I just wanted to get your reaction to it and maybe asked you if you, if you knew, if you, if you could guess sort of what he was seeing in the world, but so this is on, on the top of page 33. Uh, And he's talking about the the world that children confront um, in this time. He says the world in which many children now grow up is crowded, not necessarily with occupants and not at all with memorable experiences, but with happenings. It is a ceaseless flow of seductive trivialities, which invoke neither reflection nor choice, but instant participation. Child quickly becomes aware that he cannot too soon plunge into this flow or immerse himself in it too quickly to pause is to be swept with the chilling fear of never having lived at all i read that and i just started laughing because i thought he he hadn't he hadn't heard of youtube and tiktok and and smartphones yet and he still sees this as a as a problem so it's just a st- astonishing foresight i think on on his part
1: that passage has always jumped out to me, too. Uh, I first read Oakshot maybe twenty five years ago, and there was no real internet. I mean, there was, but nobody was really using it. And um, we didn't have cell phones. None of that existed. And I remember thinking, well, that's a that's a remarkable thing to say. I guess he's talking about TV and radio. and um, you know all the all the all the things that can distract us from. You know, actually living a meaningful life, but but now reading that in light of the internet and and of of all the social media outlets that you named is it's it's hard to believe he could have seen that so clearly, and he does. I think what he wants um, in, I think what he wants is simply to say there is a life that is reflective, that is calm, that requires a certain kind of contemplation. That is prevented or very much impeded by this notion that we have to be up to the minute on everything and constantly in the swim of everything and you know knowing what is going on in the news and knowing what's going on in culture. I mean, he just thinks that actually prevents the kind of deep thinking and contemplating and reading that would otherwise go on. And you're right; it is infinitely worse in 2021 (laughs) than it was in 1975 when everybody wrote this.
0: Right. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about with this essay is this this notion. He might, he might, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he he might mention at the beginning of the essay, um, but he, but he certainly brings it out with some more explicitness at the end. He says learning is a comprehensive engagement in which we come to know ourselves and the world around us. And then he 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 mentions that he he thinks this is both a doing and a submitting. At the same time, a mixture of activity and and submission. So I thought I would just ask you to to say a word about about that kind of paradoxical mixture. It's both a, a doing and an active of putting oneself out there. Um, but it's also something more passive, a submission to 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 something some uh, some kind of external authority.
1: Yeah, I think that the notion of submission there is is maybe twofold. One that you submit yourself to a tradition as it comes to you. The other is that you submit yourself to teachers. It is that you could you actually have to have a certain level of trust that teachers know what they're doing, that they have something to transmit to you, uh, and that it's worth being transmitted, that it's it's a kind of there's a good there that is to be had. So in that sense, you are you are submitting. I mean, I, and I think that's directly counter to so much of what we see now in contemporary social justice education, where people are saying, well, I don't care what those old dead white men said. I want to, in a way, create the world anew. I'm not going to submit to having to read Locke and Hobbes and Plato and Aristotle. They have nothing to say to me. And Oakeshott would say, actually, they have made you who you are, whether you know it or not. So you have to submit to them. And then... But it's not a sort of blind submission, as if well everything those guys said was right, and we just take it and then pass it on un- unmodified. He he would say, "Then you appropriate it, you make it your own, you do something with it, uh, you help you you transform it into a kind of personal philosophy, and that's the doing. That's the the, the taking, the reading, the thinking, and then having it impact you as an as an individual." Yeah, so I think that's how how you could think of it as both submission and doing at the same time.
0: Well, that's a nice transition then to the to the second essay, learning and teaching. This this is a an essay where he kind of digs in, you might say, to the that teacher student relationship. What he, what it's supposed to look like. What, um, you know, how should the teacher think about uh, his or her students? Um, how should the pupil or student think about? Uh, his or her teachers. It's it's really fascinating because I don't off the top of my head I'm struggling to think about other writers who've written on education who kind of unpack that relationship with with the kind of depth that that he does here. There are are probably some I can't think of them off the top of my head. So so maybe we'll just start with the start from the standpoint of the of the teacher. What what does he say that that you think is kind of worth thinking about as as far as the task of the teacher and the task of teaching?
1: One thing Okshat says that has always stuck with me is the idea that the teacher needs to have confidence that something he or she is teaching is worthy of admiration and worth passing on. I think he would find it impossible to imagine that a teacher would be critical and uh, would be critical and uh, disparaging of the tradition that is, that is being taught. I mean, there's got to be something that the teacher judges to be good in what he's passing on, and that is that is a, that's a crucial part of of being a good teacher. I think he borrows this phrase from Mill uh, that a teacher is an agent of civilization. And that's that's a very heavy heavy burden for yeah. those of us who are teachers, right? But that's where he says the line about you know if you have no confidence that anything you're passing on is worthy of being passed on then you should not be a teacher and he's right about that. We have to approach uh, the tradition we are teaching as worthy of of attention and and being passed on. Now, does that mean you can't be critical of a of a tradition? Of course not. You can. But he he was was very much thinking that you know that this tradition is uh, is a good thing and it should be t- passed on by teachers. I think also. He saw the teachers as having an enormous impact on students in the sense that not not that they were giving them the information that they couldn't get elsewhere. I mean, nowadays we could get information anywhere we want, but in that they were modeling a certain mode of life for the students. And often what was most important in the teacher's teaching was not the fact that he talked about the three branches of government or whatever it is you, you were learning in class that day, it was the way, it was the style of the teacher himself. How, what, how did he approach his subject? What did he convey about the importance of the subject? Did the students find him interesting and attractive and, and someone they would want to be like? And Oakshot's very good on that. And I think that's a huge part of, of teaching and learning, that we learn as much from the character of the teacher as we often do from what he or she says.
0: He divides teaching into two and he says, part of it you've already made reference to it is the the conveyance of information um which maybe isn't as simple as it as it sounds um and and then and then the the second thing is the imparting of judgment and so information i think he associates with instruction and judgment he he associates with imparting um so maybe just say say a word about kind of that um." that dichotomy, the way he understands teaching is being um, this, this twofold, this twofold function.
1: Yeah. I mean, Oakschott loves dichotomies. I should just say that at the outset, he loves to have ideal types that are opposing each other. And he does this all the time. And this is one of them, instruction uh, versus imparting. And he doesn't, he doesn't do it as if to say there's only one that goes on in teaching. He actually says they are they are joined, uh, that there is a there's a measure of instruction that goes into teaching. There's a measure of imparting. And actually, they can't be disentangled. The instruction, of course, So in other words, they
0: don't they don't. It, he, he's saying instruction. It's not like instruction happens first and imparting, and imparting happens imparted. section. OK,
1: no, it's always bound up together. But he is trying to distinguish two different things. Which are that instruction might be simply um, giving a lecture, uh, giving giving uh, a lecture about, say, as I said before, the three branches of government, how they work. It might be teaching, um, you know, the art of Michelangelo. How, how does it, how does it look? Here's a painting he uh, painted, and let me show these to you. And that's it's giving you information. It's all important, but but the imparting is the it's almost the making meaningful of the information to. Uh, this to the student. It, it, why should we care about this? I mean, we've all had teachers who make you either really care about something or not care about it at all. And what he's saying is that the imparting goes on in the, it, it's really the style of the teacher, uh, the manner. Oksad is very big on style and manner and um, sort of mode of activity. Uh, he's very interested in what it is that individuals can contribute to to learning and teaching. And the imparting is what goes on Sort of on in the event of instruction. and and that also can go on in just simply watching. I mean, have you ever had the experience of watching practice scholars talk about a subject? There, they would not be necessarily giving you information, but they would be imparting sort of the manners of the conversation. Uh, and, and I, I think Oakshot thought all that all that stuff that is thought to be extraneous is actually very central to the to the practice of learning. So this notion of style and manner is, is crucial, and that's part of the imparting.
0: Is it also the case that he thinks part of part of judgment would be to reveal to the student, I guess, in a kind of indirect way, your reasons as a teacher for selecting this information and not other information, right? That That over time, the student, as the student kind of grows and his or her aptitude would be able to understand why the information that was an include that was included in the lecture was included and why you know the stuff that wasn't included wasn't does that make sense i don't
1: it does and it is the burden of the teacher to make those determinations and to to come in with a kind of uh set of i hate to use this term learning objectives i mean but in the sense that we all write a syllabus that is what we're doing, exactly. We're considering, okay, what is important for students to know in this on this topic? Um, how, how might we convey it to them in a way that it makes sense to them having started at the beginning and then getting to the end of a, a semester? So there's a selection process, I think that will become evident to students, but a student can't know that going in completely green, uh, not having ever studied the, the subject before. That's why I think um, as much as I'm grateful for the Internet uh, during this past year, you know, doing online classes without a teacher or essentially without a teacher is you miss all the imparting. You just get the information. And, okay. uh, you know, it's it's a kind of overwhelming process of, well, what is that? What of this is supposed to be important? Uh, how do I know what's most important? And and that is what a teacher can can do in the flesh uh, or um, certainly in a lecture you you can you can imagine that that being conveyed, and Oakeshott thinks that's hugely important, and I, I think he's right
0: yeah, what I just wanted to ask you about this this may not connect explicitly to to anything we were just discussing, but there was there's this one quotation that I thought was interesting, but i didn 't quite know what to make of it on on page fifty seven He says that uh, this again this is in the second essay, Learning and teaching he writes learning begins not in ignorance but in error um so i just wasn't learning beginning in ignorance is i don't know, i guess it might be too strong to call it a a cliche but awareness of one's ignorance right that's a kind of socratic notion but he he seems to be saying something something different so i just wondered if you could um say something yeah. about what he might might mean by by learning beginning not in ignorance but in error
1: Well, I think he would say um, that that's an interesting, it's an interesting line and sometimes they're, uh, they're kind of uh, cryptic, but I do think what he's saying is, look, if, if you didn't know anything about, about something, you wouldn't even know that it needed to be learned. But what he does say is that if you were totally ignorant of something, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that it was there to be learned. So more likely uh, is the situation where you think you understand something already, but you're not quite right about it. Or you you partially understand something. And then you're in a position to be led in a way that you prior to prior to being aware of your um your, your half knowledge, you're you're not prepared to do.
0: Right. Right. That might be
1: one way of glossing my line. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then he associates at at the conclusion of this discussion of of uh instruction and in, and imparting judgment, he mentions some virtues. Intellectual virtues, he 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 calls them, and so maybe you could just say a word about the particular virtues that that he mentions, and and um, you know maybe reflect on why he thinks these intellectual virtues, in particular, are are important.
1: It's interesting that you bring this up because this is something I have been thinking about quite a bit uh, with respect to this essay. He, I actually wrote down the the virtues he names there: disinterested curiosity, patience intellectual honesty, exactness, industry, concentration, and doubt. And he calls these intellectual virtues that you gain at the in the process of becoming liberally educated. And, and of course I think they're really quite good and important virtues, disinterested curiosity, patience, intellectual honesty. but they also strike me as moral virtues. I mean, you know, they do have to do with the intellect, but imagine, um, you know, meeting a scholar who was certain all the time he was right and he uh, didn't have patience. He, he was willing to put his view forth uh, regardless of whether it was true. I mean, that's not, a, that's not a person you could learn from in the way of imparting in, in the way that Okshada is talking about because he's not exhibiting intellectual virtues. He's exhibiting something else. A kind of um, you know, maybe he's wants to be a celebrity in the intellectual world. but these these virtues are are kind of the virtues that are required for us for, I think, a true scholar that you're willing to be refuted. I mean, think about that alone. How, how many scholars do we know that really don't ever want to be refuted? He's saying actually, that's what you learn in the process of becoming liberally educated. the the willingness to submit to refutation. And so it's an intellectual virtue, but it's also kind of a moral virtue. And think about in conversation, what do we what do we value in a conversation partner? Is it the person who's dogmat who's a dogmatist? I, I don't usually. I, I would rather somebody who's willing to to be refuted and to and to rethink his view or uh, to to make a change in the view. And Upshot is saying that you kind of get this softening of your edges in in liberal education because you realize that there are, there are ways of understanding the world that are quite different from one another. And you, you have to come to terms with those, those different views. And in so doing, you will probably be challenged on your own, not in the sense of like modern day critical thinking where, you know, we're out to undermine every view you ever held, but you might not know as much as you thought you did. And liberal education in his, in his understanding, which will, sh- will often show you that, and it will transform you. It will make you so, different.
0: And he, I mean, you, you, you just mentioned that you think this is? Um, he thinks these are essential essential virtues for for the scholar. Um, do you think it's also true that that he he would hope that these these virtues would in part be inculcated by any student experiencing liberal education, and they would be of use in, I guess, in a non non scholarly context.
1: Absolutely. Imagine our politics. If we had people who were patient, intellectually honest, um, were were disinterested, in other words, weren't constantly putting their own interests um, first, I mean, we might be able to get to a a more civilized understanding of of our common life instead of constant fighting, constant war, let me win, uh, the way contemporary politics seems to often go. He's saying, look, put yourself Not in, not in. Don't doubt yourself, but but just put yourself aside for the moment. I mean, the world is much bigger than you, and to the degree you can enact these virtues, I think uh, he thought it it would have potentially good um, societal effects.
0: Right. He and he mentions after at the conclusion of this discussion of these um, virtues, both moral and intellectual. I think you've made a good case that they're not they're not purely uh, intellectual even in an Aristotelian sense, I think you could say they're, they're moral. He, he says he he recognized um, he recognized the circumstances uh, that, that required these virtues by his own experience with a sergeant gymnastics instructor, who he says lived long before the days of physical education and for whom gymnastics was an intellectual art. I owed it to him not on account of anything he ever said, but because he was a man of patience accuracy, economy elegance and style that was kind of an interesting way to conclude <laughs> conclude this
1: yeah that is, it certainly is and this this points to something that you will see in Oakeshott's work throughout not just in education but that style is of utmost importance and not just not a, not a sort of a dress and appearance style but a, what manner of conducting yourself in the world, Do you exhibit that matters Uh, and it mattered tremendously to him and he thought that was that's really what you're doing in imparting i mean haven't we all had teachers where you know in we've we've picked up their mannerisms or we've we've formulated problems in the way we know they would i mean we we imitate and we then acquire our own style it doesn't happen immediately we may not even be aware we're doing it but the style of a person is of immense importance Right. The style of mind, really, the way that, the way you think, the way the person thinks.
0: It just struck me to one one thing we we haven't mentioned, and maybe I've I've given um, the wrong impression in some of the the questions, uh, the way I phrased some questions. I, I kept, I think, I kept talking about teacher and student, but Oakshott talks about teacher and pupil. Yeah, Do you think does. there is there is there any significance? To the fact that he uses the the word pupil rather than than student, I think for the most part it's pupil is the word word he uses throughout throughout the essay. So so maybe any any thoughts on why the the word pupil might be significant?
1: Yeah, interesting question. I, I think he's trying to distinguish there somebody who isn't in an established relationship. I mean, you could say, I'm a student of life. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly learning. I'm, you know, I'm becoming smarter, hopefully, or more educated because I go out and gaze at the sky and see the birds. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a student of life. He was He was trying to oppose something like that where learning takes place everywhere all the time. He knows that's true, but he wants to say the pupil is somebody who has understood himself as the counterpart of a teacher. Mm. And you can't really have a pupil without a teacher, and the teacher has specific things that he wants to instruct and impart um, to, if you can use the verbs that way uh, the, to this to the pupil. Um, he's talking about a particular kind of relationship, and I think it's a relationship that really most goes on or has traditionally most gone on gone on in universities, where the student is not just, you know an eighth grader who's mastered. The basics of algebra and English grammar, but it's somebody who's ideally arrived with a good a good background, but not fully formed. And so the teacher in the university has something specific, a set of specific things to impart to the pupil, and the pupil is uniquely ready to receive those things.
0: That's very good. Are there what what do you think? Um, getting close to to time here. What what do you think, Oakshot? Given Oakshot's understanding of liberal learning. Do you think he has a specific, uh, would have specific or had specific recommendations, I guess, in terms of of curricula or institutions? I mean, would would he say liberal learning might depend on the St. John's great book style of education becoming the norm? I mean, what, I guess, just in a more concrete sense, um, what do you think his recommendations would be? Uh, You know, in terms of of making liberal learning um, have more of a foothold in our society, I guess, both in the context of of colleges and universities or maybe in other in other contexts.
1: That's a great question. And it's really different, I think, in, in our time than it was in his. It's more of the same. I mean, the kinds of corruptions he saw in the university in the 70s, the 60s and 70s have only increased in the politicization and the um, the constant vocationalism. I don't know that he would say though that there would be one, <clears throat> one way of doing this. I mean, the, the St. John's model is obviously admirable in many ways, but there are very few people who are sort of intellectually prepared for that. I mean, the, you have to be of a certain mindset already before you can fully engage in what I understand the St. John's education to be. I think he would probably say something like, We need to convey this notion of liberal learning and try to instantiate it wherever we are. So that, you know, he would say uh, a professor at a college out in Colorado or California can do this with his students. He can also not do it. And most, many professors do not understand themselves at all in the way that Oakeshott talks about liberal learning. But I think he would say, the first thing is you, you've you got to get the vision um, of what I'm talking about, and then you have to, you have to do it uh, as a teacher. I think he would say certainly, um, ideally liberal arts colleges are probably more likely to do this than large research universities. Uh, my own undergraduate school was Oberlin College, and there was a lot of that that went on uh, at Oberlin. I mean, Oberlin was also a very political and activist place, but when we weren't doing the politics and activism, um, the teachers were engaged in very much what Upshot is talking about with with liberal learning, the subject uh, conveying the information and imparting a, a kind of style. And I think that's easier done, more easily done in a place where the classes are smaller, where the teachers can know the students, as opposed to large lecture halls, because, you know, there it's, it, you're very much focusing on the instruction part and not the imparting part, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. may take place in, in, you know, someone's home or at a coffee shop or in any number of other places besides a, a, a lecture hall. So I think he would say it can go on anywhere, but it is probably more likely that it will go on in liberal arts colleges or little enclaves in larger research universities. And that's what I see now. I'm sure you have similar experiences where you know, the, a, a large state university will have a little honors program or something going on where the students are very invested in, in this kind of learning, but the university <laughs> as a whole may not be.
0: And did he um, I mean, was he able to to engage in this in this sort of learning at LSE? I don't I know nothing about how the that school was organized, if it was more like a large research university or or um, just how he was able to interact with his students. I'd just be curious to know what what uh, what his sort of what what kind of teaching he was engaged in.
1: You know, I don't I don't know a lot of specifics there, but I do know um, that he had an enormous impact on. Many, many students who went through his classes. I don't know if he met them outside of school as well. He probably did i that's my guess right uh, but he um, he he was a de- he was a devoted teacher and he was a much loved teacher. so obviously he did um, he did do this in some way there
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, How about some recommendations uh, for further readings from from Oakshot so the I should have said at the beginning the the two essays that that we've been discussing are from a volume called The Voice of Liberal Learning. Um, I think it looks like it was first published by uh, Yale and then reprinted in 2001 by Liberty Fund. And so um, you can find these two essays in that volume plus four other ones. Um, But but just beyond this book, um, if someone wanted to Dive into Oakshot maybe for the first time. What what essays? What books might you recommend? It sounds like uh, Experience and Its Modes maybe not would be the first place.
1: No, <laughs> to go. no I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't start with Experience and Its Modes or On Human Conduct. If if you just want to get a sense of who Oakshot was and the way he wrote and thought, there's a wonderful short essay that First Things published back in 1995, and it's called Work and Play. And you can just go to the First Things website and type in Work and Play, and it's it, it touches on all these themes but that's a that's a wonderful place to start he distinguishes uh, the world of wants um and needs from the world of um of uh, basically it's a kind of peeparian uh, joseph peeper's leisure the basis of culture kind of argument that mm. the really valuable things are play um not not work so work and play is a great short introduction if you like it there's a wonderful introduction to Oakeshott written by um, Paul Franco, who is probably, uh, he is certainly among the very best Oakeshott scholars. He has a long book called Michael Oakshott's Political Philosophy, I think it's called, but this is a shorter one. It's called um, Michael An Introduction. But if you want to read Oakshott's own essays, which I highly recommend, there's always Rationalism in Politics. That's his most famous uh, collection of essays. In that volume, I would point you to The Tower of Babel. The voice of poetry and the conversation of mankind and also of course rationalism in politics and then um, there's another uh, book of his essays called religion politics and the moral life um, also published by yale um, and edited by tim fuller and, and there's a short essay in there called the claims of politics that is just fantastic um, which is a it's almost a kind of disparagement of politics which in our day is much needed why do you so say the that Claims of politics <laughs> well the, the notion, he takes up the notion that the only important thing to do with your life is to be involved in politics. And he mm. says, that's ridiculous. There are many, many other things that are as or more important than politics. And some of them consist in scholarship, in poetry, in art, in music, in all the things that are uniquely human uh, and and worth doing in their own right. And politics facilitates that, or it should facilitate those things, but it cannot be the aim of life uh, mm-hmm. to to politics. So that's he, a really
0: great one. Yeah, so that's a great great uh, some great suggestions. How about just I mean I, th- I think most people who who would have heard of of Oakshot will have heard him be referenced right as a as a kind of conservative political philosopher or conservative thinker. Some of his essays, Oakshot's essays I mean, touch explicitly on kind of conservatism and and what it is. M- maybe a final question is what kind of is is Oakshot's conservatism Particularly distinctive, right? I guess you'd you'd have certain kinds of American conservatism. You could have Burkean conservatism, right? There's all sorts of varieties of conservatism that uh, conservative themselves love to kind of argue about and 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 think about these these different currents within within the conservative disposition. So maybe just say a couple things about Oakeshott's conservatism, what it is, and how it might be different from some of these other strands that that are often spoken about?
1: Yes, great question. And the short answer is, I think Oakeshott is um, entirely uh, unclassifiable. He, it, It's interesting because he did read Burke and he's very burke in some ways, especially when he talks about tradition. Uh, and in his later work, he talks about practices as, as a kind of, um, as a substitute for the word tradition. But he is, note, note the way he talks about conservatism. It's not, it's not the conservative view, it's the conservative disposition. What does that mean? And for him, it means something very specific, which is a disposition to enjoy the world, to be positively disposed toward the world as much as possible, to engage in things that are uniquely human and ends in themselves. Like I've mentioned, he thought liberal learning was one of these things, uh, poetry, um, friendship, conversation, he had lots of friends, and he had lots of conversations. He thought that's what we need to be doing, and we need to have structures where we can conserve those activities. And uh, that is, in a sense, um, part of his conservatism that is most important. The other part, though, I would say, is he's 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 a great defender of individuality against collectivism, and that comes out in his in his later work, especially in On Human Conduct. He said, you know, the danger of politics now is that it tends to. Absorb everything into these great grand projects, in which he calls enterprise association, where you know the government is there to direct us and to tell us what we ought to be doing, and we need to get on board with that. And he said, "No, there's another way of conceiving politics, which is civil association, where we have some rules of the game, but we are left free to pursue our own uh, self-chosen purposes." And that, to me, is a pretty conservative sentiment, or it used to be, uh, at least. And in in that sense, he's he's politically conservative, is wonderful defender of individuality. Uh, and I, I like that a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, well, that's Yeah, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Well, Elizabeth, thanks. This has been been really enjoyable. And um, I appreciate your insights on these two essays. And I hope our listeners will, will dive into a place of learning and learning and teaching and, and some of the other essays that, that you've recommended.
1: Thank you so much, Flagg. It's great talking to you.
0: Great to talk to you. You've been listening to Enduring Interest podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R rorg Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.